Yeah, I see Jim Horn is on alto saxophone. Yeah, I said that. You said that. Okay, yeah, cut that. I'm cutting that. I'm going to say something else, though. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I love when you say stuff. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, aspiring aficionado of cosmic country and psychedelic roots music. Well, you're an aspiring aficionado? I'm getting there. I, I consider you to be pretty knowledgeable in that realm. No, I've got more I can learn. Okay. He's aspiring, Jeremy. <laughs> That's great. There's always more to learn in the ever-expanding universe. The cosmic. I'm co-host Jeremy, and I'm aspiring to get away from my reputation as the host who always plays the downer songs, and thought I might stay away from sad songs for this episode. <laughs> That's wise. And how do, you, how do you feel about this new shift? Well, I'm not even actually going to do it. It's just a yeah. name of a song that's, that's, on here. That's pretty hard with the record we chose today. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I thought co-hosts Sean and Jeremy were professional heroes or something after I saw them run into that burning church to rescue those school children. <laughs> but it turns out they're greasers. I can't abide that. <laughs> What in the world? Are you a soch? <laughs> I'm not a soch. I'm a, a teacher. A teacher who had class of kids out in the countryside and witnessed this heroism. What in the world? <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> I have no idea what any of this is in reference to. <laughs> It'll all come to light at some point yeah. in this episode. Nothing, I hope so. Nothing gold can stay. Our guest at least understands what I'm referring to and it. It will all make sense later on. But first of all, we should introduce the guest and then perhaps the record. And our guest for this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar, the final album that we're talking about in season four, is a music supervisor who also hosts The Windmills of Your Mind on NTS Radio. Welcome back for your 10th appearance on I'd Buy That for a Dollar, Taylor Rowley. Hi. Wow, 10? Yes, I I added it all up and it, this you're in the double digits now. Wow, cool. I think that comes with an honorary guest host title. <laughs> like honorary co-host perhaps? Guest star? Guest star? We we obviously figured this out in advance. <laughs> yeah, how do they do it out in Hollywood, Taylor? I was just talking about that because I was watching the second season of Melrose Place and Heather Locklear had been on every episode since like the second half of the first season, but she's still credited as guest star, even like 10 episodes into the second season. And I don't know why. I think it must have to, it must have to do with pay in some way. I don't know. But yeah, that's just, that's all I know. 
from Tinseltown. Well, I mean, you're getting paid as much as we are, so I guess that makes you a co-host. <laughs> right. Yeah. Co-host at large. <laughs> and what record did you bring to talk to us about today, Taylor? We are going to talk about uh, Willow the Wisp, which is the sixth studio album by Leon Russell. So you've chosen your, your fighter in the Battle of the Leons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Last week, of course, we talked Leon Redbone with guest Wes Wheat, and that was Leon's debut from 1975. And this record by Leon Russell is also from 1975, correct? Yeah, but it's his sixth go at it. Yeah, is that a fair battle <laughs> to put a sixth album up against a debut? I mean, if you're asking me, nothing going up against Leon Redbone is a fair battle, but that's just my opinion. Oh, you've you've already uh, decided before we even <laughs> state our yeah, case. Wow, Sean, <laughs> way to keep an open mind. Yeah, I'll I'll consider your points, but uh, we all know how this will end. Well, Taylor, in this battle of the Leons. How would you like to fire your first shot? I'm going to send Bluebird into the ring. All right. Bluebird, side B, track three. I'm lost in the night The icy wind is howling out your name And desolation lingers like a fog The fire is growing dimmer in the wind I'm out in the rain The moon is gone behind Call my bluebird went away And I'm locked in this room with my sorrow No escape, no way to get away And my only connection with tomorrow Is hoping that you might decide not to stay away Oh, I'm out on a limb if I could only find sweet love again To live my life this way is too much to bear Can't find my bluebird anywhere, So that was Bluebird, um, and that was not even a single from his record, but it was a, a single for Helen Reddy, and I would believe, a hit? yeah, I think it was a hit for her, and uh, that's off her record that came out the same year called No Way to Treat a Lady, 
So I think that's, um, you know, he was, before he became a singer-songwriter, he was mostly a songwriter for other people. So I think that's a good way to get started talking about him. Yeah. Just like the recently discussed Glenn Campbell, I didn't realize how much session work Leon Russell was responsible for as well. Speaking of Glenn Campbell, he played on Gentle on My Mind, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he did. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels between Leon and Glenn, I noticed, in, yeah, both being studio dudes. Both of them were dudes I also thought of as, like, songwriters, but didn't really know their solo stuff too much. So this was really interesting to dive into for me, because I like his singing style a lot. It's, like, kind of loosey-goosey and weird. It, and It's unique. It, yeah. And I could see it being something that would either make or break it yeah but i like it yeah man that song had some interesting i like the synthesizers going on and it's kind of through this album there's a lot of like kind of weird textures and arrangement things but like not super far out for the most part but enough where it doesn't get sounding like I don't know. If stuff's like too rootsy sounding, I tend to like space out and not be that interested. But I also, in preparation for this episode, watched a whole concert from some type of like public access that was Leon Russell and Glenn Campbell playing together. Oh, that's cool. When is that from? It looked like from the 80s, probably. And. They're just kind of like trading songs back and forth, and they're both just utter masters at their instrument. That was, I knew Leon was like a great piano player. Um, and we mentioned in Glenn Campbell about how he was like a studio ace, but on the guitar. Yeah. And he's just like going off on some guitar solos in that thing. And I was like, wow, these guys are, it's like two masters put together for this thing that did not seem like a, like a, huge studio production or anything. Yeah, and they're both people that don't really get talked about a lot anymore, but at one point they were both some of the biggest stars in the world. Yeah, it seems like this is kind of peak Leon Russell. He was like playing on everything, playing with everybody, putting out records like crazy in the 70s, and this is like right in the throes of all that. Yeah, I can now see why when he passed away several years back now that a lot of people 20 to 30 years my senior were really affected by it and mentioned it a lot to me. You know, at the time, I liked what little bit I had checked out by him. I, I knew him mostly as just a name I saw in the bins. Yeah. <laughs> Not someone that I heard anyone, you know, born after 1980 talking about ever but until now now that we're we're bringing him back bring it back leon russell with this episode as we do here taylor how long have you been a leon russell fan i was trying to think about that i mean i'm sure it's something like i was a fan without knowing it because he did write a lot of songs that i really love um including superstar superstar yeah, she, he co-wrote superstar with bonnie bramlett which you know um which became famous by, um, you know, the Carpenter's version. But I think I first came to know 
him from watching a concert film called Willie Nelson's Fourth of July Day Celebration, which is from 1979. And it's very difficult to find. Um, I looked today and it's not still not on YouTube or anything like that, but it's amazing. And it's got so many amazing people. Um, he, so many amazing people join him, uh, Willie Nelson, um, including Doug Kershaw and Waylon Jennings. But Leon Russell is so amazing in it. He is just this wild man. And I remember being like, who is that guy? He just keeps like walking on stage in like various states of undress and drunkenness. And he's just in so cool. <laughs> and then Willie Nelson sang um, the song that just totally made me start crying immediately, which was A Song For You, which um, I learned later was a Leon Russell song and is actually his most famous song or composition. And it has been covered a lot by other people. So that's how I came to know about him. Yeah, that, a song for you has been recorded by something like 120 artists or perhaps more. When I, I recently saw Booker T. Jones perform at the Kalamazoo State Theater, and he performed a song for you and mentioned that his friendship with Leon Russell. It, it's one of those ubiquitous pieces. I, I know we, like Aretha Franklin, we played her version of that when we did the episode on Aretha Franklin. But he's got a lot more material. And, uh, <laughs> that song is not on this album. No, it's not. Well, should we dip into a little bio about Leon? Leon was born April 2nd, 1942 in Oklahoma. He began playing piano, I'm once again suspicious, <laughs> at age four. Oh, yeah, you, you always <laughs> doubt that people can begin playing instruments that young. You don't believe in yeah. prodigies? I believe in prodigies. I just don't think they're they're not really getting into it till like five or six. Let's be, be real. He believes in the fire starter. Prodigy. Oh. Thank you, Peter. I had to. So one thing that shocked me looking into his bio is that uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in high school, he's buddies with David Gates of Bread. Mm-hmm. And J.J. Kale. <laughs> yeah. Someone that I would, I don't know, who knows what Sean has planned for recommended similar albums. I don't know if J.J. Kale albums are cheap, but that would be someone I would compare him to. <laughs> yeah. Similar sounds, similar wrote like hit songs for other people. Cocaine. Yeah. So that was pretty wild. He was like playing in a band with J.J. Kale at age 14 and is out playing nightclubs. And, you know, by the time he gets seasoned and wizened at age 16, <laughs> he moves to L.A. People grew up so fast in the past. Yeah. 16, he's in L.A. and he's doing session work. And he, as has been kind of hinted at, he plays on f over 400 albums he has credits on including Elton John, Ray Charles, B.B. King, Bob Dylan, Barbara Streisand, the Beach Boys, the band. It just goes on and on and on, this list. I, yeah, I realized today that he plays piano on the Flying Burrito Brothers version of Wild Horses that they recorded before the Rolling Stones did their own version. Oh, interesting. Yeah. He also played on um, A Christmas Gift for You from Phil Spector. Yeah, yep. So he was he's considered to be part of the Wrecking Crew, the collection of studio pros in LA that 
played on just all kinds of classic albums. Uh, he began writing songs for other people in like the mid 60s. So we're talking, you know, he's really gotten into his stride and learned the ways of life come about age 20. Yeah, yeah, early 20s. <laughs> yeah, and he's ready to start just unloading songs on people. And I believe I saw he even put out some singles as early as the mid 60s. Yeah, and he he had this really strange album under the name Asylum Choir. Yeah. In 1968. Some of that came up through the algorithm after I listened to this album on streaming. And I looked, I was like, wow, this is interesting and cool and kind of sounds like Leon Russell. Oh, there, well, that looks like Leon Russell. And, but I didn't look any further into it. So that explains that. Yeah. It's like people he was doing studio stuff with in LA and they're like, let's make an album. And that's Asylum Choir. And then come 1970, he puts out his first actual proper solo studio album. And it's self-titled and included a song for you on it that would go on to be covered by everyone. Yeah, that's usually the one I first think of when I think of Leon Russell, that album. Yeah. But this one's out there. You'll see this one commonly. (laughs) Yeah, right after we talked about doing this album, I needed a copy for myself. And the first record store I went to had a copy, so (laughs) it's definitely out there. So the cover illustration was done by a guy named Gaylord Sartain. Yes. He's an illustrator and painter who was also an actor, best known for his appearances on Hee Haw, and he was in several of the Ernest films, but he also played the character Jerry in the Francis Ford Coppola film The Outsiders, who... Witnesses the greasers rescue children from a burning building and then goes to the hospital with them in a shock to find out that they're not heroes, they're greasers. And the reason this was relevant is because that film is set in Oklahoma. Yes, exactly. Double relevant. Okay. See, I wasn't as I wasn't as far out as you guys thought. (laughs) I picked up on what you were laying down, but yeah, the 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 guy who uh, his name is Gaylord Sartain. And he also played the big bopper in the Buddy Holly story. Yeah. Which yeah, he, came out in 78 or something starring Gary Busey. Yes. As Buddy Holly. But yeah, so he, man of uh, many talents, he illustrated this cover of Will of the Wisp. And it's a gr- it's such a good cover. And I think that Leon Russell has one of the best faces for album covers ever. True. <laughs> yeah, he's got this kind of mysterious cosmic quality about mm-hmm. him. I was telling one of my coworkers today we were doing this album and she was like, man, he's so hot. <laughs> and I was like, wow, I haven't had that thought, but there is, there's like something about him that's super unique and has a very unique style that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, he was a big friend and mentor to Elton John. And I think you can really see his um, influence on Elton John's like style in terms like, you know, uh, his like fashion sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They even did an album together much later on in like 2010, I believe. 
Yeah, if you want to go ahead and destroy the chronology of the episode, Peter. <laughs> oh, we're getting linear now. Yeah. I thought we were getting artsy at the end You're of the season. To get cosmic. Okay. Yeah. I see. Well, before Peter destroys the timeline any further, let's get to another song. Okay. Let's do Lady Blue. Ooh, Lady Blue might be my favorite song on the album, but I I don't want to know anticipate any more for our listeners yeah (laughs) all right that's is that the final song on the album it's the final song on the album side b track five now who's skipping ahead full of sides to this record I feel like and they all blend very well in that song it's like a little bit poppy it's got like a hooky sort of thing going on but it's like a little bit folky rootsy kind of down home vibe and then some like soul yeah like soul and then like some soft psychedelia, a little bit of trippy things going on. It's like all these elements like blended very uh, subtly and nice. It's not like, I don't know. It all felt very natural to me. I, I definitely feel like he's a pioneer of light rock or soft rock. 
obviously by this point, that was sort of an established genre on 70s radio, but he's also been at it for 10 years at this point, yeah. <laughs> you know, writing and performing. Yeah, I think a lot of his songs ended up um, as hits on the easy listening charts. Yeah, that song hit number 14 in the Billboard charts. That was a big hit. Yeah, his version. This this version of it was yeah. a big hit, yeah. Though I did see the first person to play it live was actually George Benson. Oh, weird. Oh, wow. That was interesting. Well, Leon's version has like, yeah, it has like a woozy, boozy wooziness to it that I think is really, really appealing. <laughs> There's... There's a slight drunken confessional sound to a lot of this yeah. stuff. I, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that actually was true. He was pretty drunk a lot. Yeah, it's such a good song. Peter, you said that's your favorite. On this record, yeah, that's among my favorite Leon Russell songs, right up there with A Song for You. And I also really like it when he mentions the word song in his songs, <laughs> <laughs> which he does in that one. Yeah, so this was... As we mentioned, his sixth album, this was his fourth gold record already <laughs> at this point. And kind of as I mentioned before, he's like at the peak of his powers at this time. As his first record came out in 1970. He's already on his sixth record by 75. Yeah, that's more than one a year. <laughs> yeah, and this is while he's still playing on like everybody's records. He's like playing live with all these famous people, writing songs, mm -hmm. doing TV appearances. He's just everywhere at this time. Yeah, he wrote a song for the soundtrack of the film A Star is Born, the 76 version starring Barbara Streisand yeah. and Chris Christopherson, yep. and they play it in the, in the movie. Yeah. And while he's doing all this, he opens a studio in Tulsa called The Church Studio, and bunches of huge musicians recorded stuff there at that time and that's where he's starting to get into like production-y kind of work so yeah and he had started shelter records too right yeah that's true yeah and i want to say it was 69 70 it was like right at the beginning of his career he started that yeah, yeah. and then after that he i think the next record after this correct me if I'm wrong, was Wedding Album, which is a record he recorded with his then wife, Mary Russell, nay, Mary McCreary, who I think sings yes. on this record too. Yeah, she's on here. Yeah, she's doing the backup box. Probably a good time to mention some of the other players on this thing, which, you know, him playing with all these famous people, he of course has a, a crazy good backing group with him here. He's got Donald Duck Dunn on bass. One yeah, of the, from uh, Booker T and the MGs. Yeah, oh. and a lot of the stack stuff he was on. Uh, Steve Cropper from Booker T as well <laughs> yeah. on guitar. You got J.J. Kale doing some guitar in this thing, who's like big in his own right. And grew up with Leon Russell. <laughs> yeah, I was playing with him back at age 14 and... In Tulsa, uh, as you mentioned, Mary McCreary's doing backup box. You got Jim Horn on the alto sax. Got Patrick Henderson on organ, who I was not super familiar with. And when I looked into it, 
there was some crazy story about a crazed fan chopping off his hand. What? And Whoa. they like surgically reattached it. So that was wild. Uh, you also have, <laughs> and moving past that, we have Albert Jackson Jr. on drums, also from Booker T. You got Jim Keltner on drums as well, and there's like four other drummers on this thing. Those are the two biggest names that yeah. I saw. Yep. And then Roger Lynn on synthesizers, who probably his biggest claim to fame would be inventing the LM1 drum machine. Amazing. One of the early drum machines, uh, one of the first ones to use samples. And just as a clarification to our listeners who aren't hip to Jeremy's lingo, Vox are vocals, not a, oh. not a Vox organ. <laughs> or Vox amplifier. Exactly. <laughs> not the company Vox, vocals. Kind of a big shot producer, you know. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy uses that hip lingo. I'm just going to jump in with a fun little piece of trivia here. I recently learned that the Lynn drum machine that you just mentioned, the built-in clap sound was recorded by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Like they and actually recorded the original one that is used on all kinds of other recordings. Yeah. Um, most notably, Prince was a big fan of the Lynn drum machine and specifically the clap sound. He would detune the clap sound as far as it could go to get the, like, the signature Prince clap. So basically anytime there's a clap sound on a Prince song, that's actually Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. Do they get royalties for that? Probably not. Probably not, but maybe. I doubt it. <laughs> you know, I think Tom Petty and, and the Heartbreakers did all right for themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think they were hurting for money. Didn't Prince rip that famous While My Guitar Gently Weeps solo while performing with Tom Petty? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it all came together there in that moment. Yeah. All was forgiven at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> he is doing tons of stuff through the 70s. And come 1979, he establishes Paradise Records, which was interesting to me because he had already made shelter records but that was with a partner this seemed to be a solo thing that was separate but also involved it was like music studios but also like a tv studio music room type area yeah at a certain point when reading through his bio just all the ventures and avenues he went down started to get overwhelming yeah yeah it's a little leon really did it up. Yeah. Paradise Studios had a TV show called, um, or aired it called um, New Wave Theater, which was a live music show, and that was super awesome. Yeah, and they were also shooting some of the early music videos there. Yeah, exactly. So Leon was staying on the cutting edge there in the 80s. It seemed like he kind of took a step back as far as his, like, being out front solo guy kind of thing and was doing more in like production realm yeah i think you know it was a good the 80s were not kind to a lot of our favorite guys from the 60s and 70s um yeah. you know so i think it was a a classy decision to to not be uh embarrassing himself by you know 
recording a Christian album yeah. or something like Bob Dylan. Or... <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah, so he, but he was still putting out an album every few years through the 80s and 90s. So he, he didn't stop entirely, and he's still like playing live and doing all this production stuff. It seemed like in the aughts, he kind of like picked back up with solo stuff and was starting to crank out albums again, including 2010 when he did The Union with his old friend Elton John. Oh, wow. Amazing. <laughs> Sorry. That was unnecessary. That was beautiful, Peter. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Well, would we like to play another track at this juncture? Let's play another track at this juncture. Yeah, at this juncture, I think we should play um, Back to the Island, which is my favorite track from this record, and the second single. Excellent. We'll go to Back to the Island, side B, track one. Making sure you were aware that that was supposed to have a Hawaiian island vibe to it. 
Oh, yeah. is that what was happening? I just couldn't quite figure out. I was gonna say what, what imagery I was supposed to have when listening to that. Yeah, it's a it's a kind of a way 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 better version of Margaritaville. <laughs> yeah, I think if it weren't for Leon's super unique wonky voice. I would find that like intolerably cheesy, but oh, man. <laughs> somehow it kind of works. I think it's so good. My the re- ah, That song is the reason I bought this record. And the first time I heard it was at a backyard concert, maybe five or six years ago. And my friend Alexander Johnstone, who is a wonderful singer, um, did a cover of it. And I didn't realize it was. And I just was like, oh, that song is so good. And she did such a great job of singing it. And I asked her later about it, and she was like, oh, that's a cover of this Leon Russell song. So that's why I bought this record. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because with how unique his voice is, I, in the, I'm going to go on a tangent here. I was recently thinking about uh, something, the fact that Smashing Pumpkins were one of the biggest bands of the 90s, but rarely do people cover any of their songs. And I think... Billy Corgan's voice, along with the very personal nature of their music, just makes them a kind of difficult band to cover. And I almost feel like with Leon Russell, with his voice and his style, it seems like that would be the same for him. But no, he's a very coverable artist. His songs translate well coming out of other people. One of the most coverable artists, one could argue, somehow. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I mean, the numbers are there to prove it. Right. If he had only done some kind of throwback vaudevillian type of song, then maybe Leon Redbone would have covered him. (laughs) (laughs) And claimed it was his own song. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, he kind of did. He kind of did? Well, I'm saying that uh, Leon Russell kind of did a vaudevillian thing with Carney. Ah. His record. So Leon Redbone missed an opportunity. Well... There's not much left of Leon's bio here because we left him in 2010 doing an album with Elton John. Which also went gold. And, which also <laughs> went gold. Throw it on the pile of gold records. Yeah, I remember there being a fair amount of hype behind that record when it came out, especially for two artists well past their prime. Yeah, but during these sessions, Leon was hospitalized because he had well, he's suffering from heart failure, pneumonia, and had a brain fluid leak, which is just a horrifying word combination. He did recover from that, and he continued playing, and he was recording records still until 2016 when he had a heart attack, and they did surgery, and he passed away during recovery from the surgery. So... R.I.P. Leon, 2016. I think he was 74. Yeah. Made it five years longer than Leon Redbone did. Well, mm-hmm. according to some sources. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I thought uh, Leon Redbone was like 120 years old. Yeah. I mean, he definitely was, but technically he was also 69 when he passed away. Well, one point to Leon Russell for outliving him. And another point for honesty to Leon Russell. (laughs) (laughs) If you value that sort of thing, I guess. This this is really saying more about us than these artists. Isn't it always? It's so true. Well, Sean, I think Mm -hmm. it is time to ask if you 
managed to put together a list of recommended similar albums for our listeners to check out. I sure did. And I did not put a J.J. Kale record on there, although that would certainly qualify. So check out J.J. Kale. Yeah, his first album naturally is fantastic. Yeah, with the that's the one with the raccoon on the cover. Yeah, and one of the earliest uses of a drum machine. Super cool record. Yeah, that one's not as easy to find on the cheap anymore, but his no, stuff pops up in the, in the bargain bins if you look hard enough. Anyway, my first official recommendation, gotta give the full shout out here, Mary McCreary, Butterflies in Heaven from 1973, as previously featured. If you listen to this record and thought, man, that backup vocalist is killing it, wish she had a, a bigger role on this record, then uh, check out her solo albums, or possibly the Wedding album that came out, I think, a year after this one, right? Yeah, it was 76. his next album. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Mary McCreary or Mary Russell. Mm-hmm. Amazing talent. Second up, a record that I just recently purchased that I think has some interesting comparisons here. Danny O'Keefe. O'Keefe from 1972. A little more country flavored, but also has that interesting kind of country funk soul crossover going on. I know that name, and I don't think I've ever checked out Danny O'Keefe. Yes, you did. Yeah. Sean was playing it for us when he was in Kalamazoo just the other day. As mentioned on our Leon Redbone episode, I'm not retaining anything the past few weeks. <laughs> I feel that. It's been a summer. Yeah, we are all collectively limping towards the end of this season right now. <laughs> and uh, my last recommendation, this might come as a shock to some people, but Jimmy Spheris, The Dragon is Dancing from 1975. Oh Great record. <laughs> Not Isle of View. No, but that's a good record too, Peter, now that you mention it. <laughs> you know, it was only recently when I said Isle of View when we were doing this bit that I realized the album sounds like I Love You. Isle of View. Interesting. Oh, wow. You think that was intentional or not? I have to wonder if it was meant to make you say something you didn't intend to say when pronouncing the title. Fascinating. Well, we'll all have to listen to some more Jimmy's Fierce and get to the bottom of it. <laughs> And is that all of the recommended similar albums? Oh, I was going to just, it's not a record, but it's a film. It's a documentary about Leon Russell and um, a general documentary about the Oklahoma music scene in the early 70s. It's called, it's called A Poem is a Naked Person. And it's by Les Blank, who is a, you know, the famous documentarian who did Burden of Dreams. Burden of Dreams, (laughs) And a lot of other really... The uh, documentary on Werner Herzog's Fitzcarraldo, The Making of Yeah, legendary. As well, just, you know, a lot of other kind of slice of life docs about real people um, and subcultures. Garlic is as good as Ten Mothers is a great one. In Heaven There Is No Beer. This one, a poem is a naked person, um, was filmed between 1972 through 1974 and features a lot of really amazing performances by Leon Russell and, you know, his friends, you know, re- uh, recordings of people in the studio. And it was uh, not released officially until 2015, I think, is when it was officially released. But um, it's so good. I just rewatched it today. And um, it's on Criterion channel. So if you have that, you can watch it there. Nice. Sean, you have that. I do have that. I love it. My favorite streaming service. 
Uh, Taylor, I'm wondering, do you have other Leon Russell records that you stand behind that you can give a recommendation to? This is a guy for me that I know I like, and I like him more every time I hear him, but I have yet to really dive into his immense catalog. I mean, I really love Carney. Yeah, that came out in 72, so that would have been around the time of the stock I just mentioned. Um, But that that album has Tightrope, which is another really famous song of Leon's on it, and This Masquerade which was also covered by a million people, including the Carpenters. So yeah, that one. And he has a great, uh, also has a really great album cover. And that's the one that you mentioned that he does more of a, he does some vaudevillian throwback style. A little bit, but not too, not not too nuts, not unlistenable. So we didn't make a mistake and that should have been been the album that we (laughs) featured up against Leon Redbone. (laughs) It's a really, really great record. Um, But Will of the Wisp is my favorite. Nice. I do know that the record he did before this one is pretty good as well. Stop All That Jazz, which features members of the Gap Band, both playing on the record and on the cover. Yeah, I saw that he kind of helped kick the, start their career in some ways. Yeah, they cite him as like a, a big part of their career and kind of one of the guys that helped launch them into stardom. That's wild. I mean, on top of everything else that he was involved in, that <laughs> one for some reason just like that put him over the edge for me. Yeah, we can also, in some small way, thank Leon Russell for you dropped the bomb on me. So that's cool. <laughs> Another point to Leon Russell. <laughs> How many points do the respective Leons have? Well, in my count, that's three for Leon Russell and zero for Leon Redbone. <laughs> <laughs> which which we weren't at all doing points. Well, that's what I mean is, did they... Leon Redbone get any points during his episode? No, no we get... didn't even mention the oh. battle until the very end when I was just like, oh, we're unofficially doing a battle, but it's inherently silly and doesn't actually matter. And then, of course, this one, Jeremy's like, all right, the battle. <laughs> we're getting serious now that it's my turn. Correct. <laughs> that is how Jeremy does. I can't wait for the wrap-up episode. Yeah. Where we say we're not going to like award points to our favorites, and then Jeremy's going to win. <laughs> Peter has to be the impartial judge here. So, Peter, who won? Oh, boy. I'm stressed. Save it for the wrap-up. Oh, are we, I'm being uh, told by Jeremy to save it for the wrap-up episode to get people to come back and check that out. I think that's a good idea. All right. Well, come come back for the wrap-up. <laughs> this and many more things will be revealed. <laughs> Give me a little more time to, to weigh everything out. All right. So, look forward. But, well, let's, uh, let's uh, stop being vain and allow our guest to uh, perhaps plug anything. Taylor has so much cool stuff going on. What... Do you currently have going on over in your corner, Taylor? Oh, man. Well, I have my radio show, which, you know, I pedal on here every time. Um, it's called The Windmills of Your Mind. It's on NTS Radio every other Thursday, um, 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. PST. Yeah. and you, Not to be missed. Thank you. So, yeah, you can hear that um, on NTS Radio Live or it's archived shortly after. And you can find it on my website, too. And man, I've got a lot going on. I've got like four features and two docs that I'm music supervising um, right now. Not much that I can talk about because they're not released, but um, it's a busy time. What were the, uh, I don't know if the two films that uh, you went out to, that were screened out in New York uh, a while back, are those? Yeah, Tribeca, are those now available to be viewed anywhere? They are not, not yet. But hopefully 
by the next time I'm on here, if you'll have me back for my 11th appearance. <laughs> no, we, we talked and 10 was our limit. So yeah. it's well, I'm afraid if Leon Redbone wins, then you're not going to invite me back. Because that means that I didn't do a great job talking on this episode. Um, but yeah, uh, they're not, uh, no, neither Somewhere Quiet or The Graduates, which were the two films at Tribeca, um, that I music supervised, have been released yet. Well, we'll keep an eye out for those. Yeah. And yeah. And definitely check out Windmills of Your Mind on NTS Radio. Thank you. We are, yeah, this is the the end as far as albums for season four. But as previously mentioned, we will do a wrap-up episode, which will be the next episode after this. We'll, so come back for that. We'll talk more about these two Leons and the ultimate decision. Yeah. And we'll just sort of summarize some of highlights of ours from throughout season four, which has been a really wonderful season with a lot of new guests and you know a lot of also returning favorite guests it was a whirlwind it truly was a whirlwind (laughs) (laughs) and yeah look forward to looking back on all that so stay tuned for that next week but i think we're gonna close the book here on leon russell for this episode uh taylor what did you want to leave everyone with we are going to leave with a song called can't get over losing you which you know hopefully is not a strong arm taylor into <laughs> it's hopefully not um the case in the um in the battle between him and leon redbone <laughs> Ooh, mm-hmm. <laughs> a premonition this one has an obnoxiously long and weird intro which is why i really wanted to, <laughs> to feature it and Peter was like, are we going to skip the intro and go to the real song? And I was like, no. I kind of love the intro. I just wish that it made sense more with the song or like maybe had the yeah. elements tie into the song in any way. But I will say, point to Leon Russell for actually hiring like masters of a different instrument instead of just trying to poorly recreate it himself like so many other white musicians would have done. So that's four points. Yeah, that's yeah. four. <laughs> <laughs> Not doing myself any favors here, but <laughs> giving points to Russell here. I mean, yeah. I suppose yeah. we should state that we're all fans of both. Initially, Jeremy wanted to do Leon Redbone, and I said no. It has oh. to be me. I'm a huge oh. fan. He called me out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that hadn't been mentioned on mic yet. <laughs> that's fair. Music is cool, guys. You know why does it have to be a competition? Yeah, why do we do this? I don't know. Wasn't my idea. That's the talk of losers I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, Taylor, Taylor's like, I, why is my hat even in this? Yeah. <laughs> Taylor, how do you feel about Leon Redbone, though? Are you I a fan? I don't know. I don't know how I, I don't think I have any feelings towards Leon Redbone. Interesting. All right. Well, listen to our episode and maybe you'll be a con- maybe be converted. Yeah. There's a plug for one listener, Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, let's get out of here on Can't Get Over Losing You, Side A, Track 4. And I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm co-host Peter. 
And I'm co-host Sean. And I'm Taylor. Thank you again, honorary co-host Taylor Rowley. Yeah.